James 3, verses 1 and 2. Let me read it for us. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. Being a pastor is tricky business. For example, this morning, I'm preaching on a pair of verses here that tell you you should not be a preacher. So I'm standing before you to teach on a pair of verses that I'm flamboyantly disregarding. That's the irony of this passage, and that's kind of the irony of of being a pastor in general. It's good to want to be a pastor. The scripture says that, 1 Timothy 3, verse 1, the work of a pastor, the desired is a noble thing. But then James 3, verse 1, that says that not many of you should want it. Let me tell you briefly about my own experience with this passage. I, I grew up not going to church. I came to faith in Christ my senior year in high school, the small non-denominational church called Grace Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And after that, I went to work for a at the end of college, I went to work for a missions organization. It sent me to live out of the country for a while. And uh, while I was there, one of the things I was doing is I was interviewing other pastors that wanted to join our movement. Don't call it a denomination, man. It's a movement. That was our motto. And I would ask these pastors if their practices matched our practices, if their beliefs matched our, don't call it a statement of faith, it's distinctives. If they're if their beliefs match our distinctives. You could tell this was a movement from, from California just by those phrases. And over the course of time doing that, I had some questions come up in my mind. I, somebody gave me a Jonathan Edwards book and I'm reading Jonathan Edwards and I'm learning whole elements of theology I didn't know existed before and it's kind of blowing my mind. And to make a long story short, I end up leaving working for that organization and I'm kind of very confused about where my theology is, what systems I, I believe. Do I have any complex form of theology? I mean, I knew I believed the Bible. I never doubted that, but I just didn't know anything beyond that. But I knew I wanted to be in ministry. So I went back to Albuquerque and I went back to the pastor of that small church, Grace Church it was called. I went back to him. I hadn't seen him in a while. But this is the church I got saved at. This is the church I got baptized at. I coached the pastor's son in soccer. I mean, this, this was my spiritual home. And so I went to him and I said, I, I'm confused and I want to go to seminary. I want to be a pastor and I want to go to seminary. I want to be trained. I need to learn what I'm supposed to believe. So I even brought with me the pastoral recommendation form for him to sign to send me off to seminary. I was 25 years old. Um, so I, he was a Dallas grad. He went to Dallas Seminary. So I thought he's, he's going to understand. He's going to send me to seminary. And he looked at me with this look that was, I think, 50% condescending <laughs> and 50% sympathy. And he said, I'm not going to sign that form. And he opened his Bible to James 3, verse 1, and read this verse to me. Not many of you should desire to be teachers. And then he told me, go do your second choice. Go do whatever's next on your list. 
Go do that for two years. And if after two years of doing that, you still decide you want to go into pastoral ministry, then I'll sign this paper. You can make an appointment with me. I'd love to sign it, but I just don't want to see you again for two more years. (laughs) And so I went and I taught high school Spanish for two years. And that was enough to convince me I needed to go to seminary. (laughs) I was coaching soccer at the time and there were these two particular kids that were not from Christian families. Uh, one named Jason, one named Adam, and uh, I saw them both come to faith in Christ. I got to share the gospel with them, and uh, they both got saved. They were at secular high schools, not a Christian environment at all. Um, got to baptize both of them, and Jason, at the end of his time in high school, got a soccer scholarship at a, a school, and his high school asked me to come and be his guest. They did an assembly for all the graduating seniors that were going to play college sports. And so I got to go there and I asked if I could pray for Jason before he, before he went. And they said, sure. <laughs> so I'm in this public high school. And all the students are there. And I got to pray for Jason before he went to college. And I remember thinking at that moment, I want to be the guy who prays for the Jasons, not the guy who coaches the Jasons. That was my, my thinking. Adam, on the other hand, he was, his parents were on the brink of divorce and he came to faith in Christ. And then went home and got to share the gospel with his parents and their marriage ended up getting reconciled and they stayed together and his dad went on when I finally did go to seminary, his dad went on to pay for my my rent all the way through seminary to thank me for my influence in Adam's life. And Adam's now a pastor. He just emailed me late last night actually in the providence of God to say that his first church has called him to be a pastor in Greeley, Colorado. Those two incidents sealed into my heart. This is what I want to do. I want to be a pastor. I want to be trained to do it. But I still have James 3.1 issues. <laughs> Not many of you should become teachers. Now, I want to give you this outline this morning. I want to give you three reasons you shouldn't become a teacher. Three reasons you shouldn't be a teacher. And by teacher here, I don't just mean pastoral ministry. Don't, don't just let your, this slide by, oh, okay, I'm not tempted to be a pastor. This is not just talking about pastoral ministry, like if you're paid to be a pastor. If you're not paid to be a pastor, you're, you're free and clear in this verse. It's not just talking about that. It's talking about eldering in general, because an elder in 1 Timothy 3 has to be apt to teach. But more than that, it's talking about anybody that stands in front of a group of people with the word of God. And is telling them what the word of God says. I think it's talking about the context of a church. Like an adult Bible fellowship. The ABF groups here. Or the small group Bible studies. Even the Bible studies that meet at McDonald's. Or Bob Evans kind of thing. It's this, it's this encouragement for you. Not to desire to teach those, those groups. Don't be quick to put yourself forward in those contexts. And I'm going to give you three reasons why. My goal this morning. I know that there's a ratio involved. And not all of you are pastors. <laughs> And so my goal is that you would understand the truth of this passage in a way that shapes how you understand the role of teaching in the church and that shapes the way you view those who are in your ABFs, who are in your Bible studies, who are teaching. The children's ministry people asked me this morning to make very clear, this has nothing to do with teaching the children's Sunday school classes. You all should teach the children's Sunday school classes. (laughs)
Before we, this passage, by the way, is just meant to be a drag on you before you go to seminary. It's meant to stumble you, to use the language of chapter three. If you're galloping towards teaching, if you're galloping towards your next Bible study where you're gonna be the teacher, this passage is designed to be just the cord that comes off the ground and trips you and stops you and makes you pause and say, am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? There's three reasons why you shouldn't want to be a teacher. But before I give you those three reasons, you need to appreciate how Christianity intersects with teaching. Because teaching has a very critical role in the church. It's modeled off of the life of Jesus. Jesus, for example, was called the teacher. That's Matthew, 28, or Matthew 23, verse eight. Jesus was the teacher with the article in front of it, the teacher of Israel. He was noted as the teacher. He was not an official rabbi, but he was recognized not just as a teacher, one of the many rabbis and one of the many teachers. He was the teacher. In fact, John 1, verse 38, the first two disciples that are following Jesus in John 1, 38, recognize him as, as rabbi. They call him rabbi. And then John breaks pauses and gives you a little parenthetical comment in John 1 38 that rabbi means teacher. Now John is writing his gospel to Jews. They know what the word rabbi means. He's breaking that in there just to let you know even though Jesus had no official capacity as a rabbi, he had no official training, he had such knowledge and such teaching, pedagogical ability that he was recognized even in those early days as the rabbi. This is what's behind the rich young ruler who runs up to him and says, good teacher. And Jesus cuts him off. <laughs> and he doesn't quibble with the word teacher. Remember, he quibbles with the word good. <laughs> who told you I was good? No one's good except God alone. It's a statement about his own deity, of course. But for the moment, notice that he lets slide teacher. He receives that label. And that makes sense. In John 13, verse 13, kind of the height of Jesus' ministry, he's talking to his disciples and he says, you call me teacher and this is right, for so I am. It's one of the I am statements in John's gospel. He is the teacher. In fact, that marks his whole ministry. Mark 9, verse 35, Jesus was going around to all the cities and provinces and villages and teaching in all the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God, healing every kind of affliction, casting out every kind of demon. But notice the order and progression there. First and foremost, he was a teacher. Now he's crucified resurrects from the grave, spends a significant amount of time, 40 days, teaching his disciples about the kingdom of God. That's from Acts chapter one. So the resurrected Jesus is still the teacher. And then he ascends to heaven, leaving 11 apostles. They'll cast lots in their kind of, I think at this point, spiritless attempt to find the 12th. And Lord responds by sending his Holy Spirit. And now every believer has the Holy Spirit in them. The Holy Spirit regenerates us, convicts us, conforms us into the image of Christ, uh, lets us see sin in our life and causes us to grow more and more like Christ. He does that through bringing this, the word to bear in our hearts. As you read the word of God, it's impressed in your heart. This is why John says in 1 John, you don't need anybody to teach you because you have the Holy Spirit, you have the word of God. Every Christian is sealed by the Spirit with the Word of God, so they should be growing on their own. But that is not, while that's true, that is not the entire picture. Jesus does not turn the church over to this sort of everyone for themselves kind of attitude. 
Instead, the Holy Spirit comes to the church and gifts the church so that every member of the church has a spiritual gifting that they use in the service of the church. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 28. God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets. And prophets here is not foretelling like the Redskins are gonna win four games this year, I predict. <laughs> you laugh now, wait a few months. That's not what a prophet means here. It's, it's forth-telling. It's telling you this is what the word of God says. And so the church gives, the Holy Spirit gives the church first apostles, second prophets, and third teachers. Then after that come uh, the gifts of healing and administrations and the various kinds of languages. Now the same list is repeated in Ephesians 4, verse 11, uh, that God has given the church through the gifting of the Holy Spirit some to be apostles. That's speaking of that first group. Some as prophets, a very critical role in the life of the early church. And then some as evangelists, those that are sharing the gospel. And then fourthly, some as pastors and teachers. That phrase, pastors and teachers, it's one person there described with both titles. That's where my job title comes from. I'm a pastor teacher, teaching pastor. It's this, this play off of the word in Ephesians 4.11. Now, every Christian is supposed to be an evangelist. Every Christian is called to evangelize, but God gifts the church particularly with few that are exceptionally good at it. So every Christian should evangelize, but God has gifted the church with those who are the evangelists. The same is true with teaching. Every Christian is in a broad sense involved in teaching because of the Great Commission. You're supposed to go into all the world, preach the gospel, baptizing people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you, Jesus says. And so there's this constant external focus of the Christian life. You're always evangelizing. And then once people come to faith in Christ, there's this constant upward focus. You're always discipling. You want this person who's a new believer to learn all that Jesus declared, all that Jesus commanded. That's what it means to teach in Matthew 28. And so you should all be doing that. And you should ask yourself, just as a side note here, are, is there a, a less mature believer that you're discipling, that you're teaching? If not, is there somebody that you've led to the Lord that you can then disciple? If not, are there people that you're evangelizing? If not, <laughs> we're getting to some pretty basic questions about your relationship to the Great Commission. And so every Christian is involved in evangelism. Every Christian should be involved in that kind of teaching. But that's not what James 1 is about or James 3 is about. It's not about that every Christian is discipling other people. It's about the particular role in the church that the Holy Spirit has gifted those people in the church that will be the ones that stand in front of the church, that stand in front of the Bible studies, the Sunday schools, and open the Bible and say, this is what the word of God says. Let me teach you. That's what this is talking about. And it says that you should not, very many of you at least, should not desire to do this. For a moment, appreciate how special the role of teaching is in redemptive history. Was there anything like this role of a teacher in the Old Testament? I mean, the closest you get is Ezra, who stood in, you know, in the rain and taught everybody. But that's so unusual, it stands out. In the Old Testament, you had three offices, prophet, priest, king. The prophet was the, again, the, the fourth telling, 40 days and Nineveh's going down. That's the prophetic role. 
There was the priestly role in the Old Testament. The priests in the Old Testament, don't picture them like modern day teachers. The priests in the Old Testament were essentially butchers. They were wrapped up in the sacrificial system. That's what they did. And then the king who descended from the line of David. Those are the Old Testament offices. In the New Testament, there's not that ongoing miraculous gift of prophecy. There is still the foretelling of God's word. So in that sense, there are still prophets, but not in the miraculous Old Testament sense. Are there priests in the New Testament? Well, every believer is a priest. You all handle sacred things. Your life is sanctified by the Lord. We all serve. It's the priesthood of all believers. We're all priests. There's no distinction in the church between Christians who are priests and those who are not. We're all in this together. Is there a king, an office of king? Well, we're all in Christ. He's the king. So those offices are done away with. And they are replaced with this function of teaching. And that makes sense because the Christian life, again, is head, heart, hands. Teachers instruct the minds. And the Holy Spirit changes the affections which change how you live. That's the New Testament model. And so teachers are injected into the New Testament church and it is good to want to be a teacher. First Timothy 3, if you want to be, do the work, if you want the office of an overseer, it is a good work you desire. And notice the progression there. If you want the, if you want the office because you want the office, that's bad. <laughs> there are those who want to be a pastor because they tried their hand at other things and it didn't work out. And so, hey, let me try being a pastor. They only work four hours a week after all. My favorite question, what do you do when it's not Sunday morning? Yeah. So Paul says it's good to desire, aspire to the work of a pastor, the work of an elder, the work of a teacher, the work of an overseer. That's good. Why shouldn't everyone then? Well, here's three reasons why everyone shouldn't. First, teachers are judged more strictly Teachers are judged more strictly. This is the second part of verse one. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Understand there's judgment involved with standing before the Lord's people with the Lord's word and proclaiming what it means. God judges people for that. A little insight into that. Mark 12, verse 38. Jesus tells the the disciples, he pulls the disciples aside. They're in the temple court there. He's about to tell them the whole thing is going down because of that corrupt system. And he pulls the disciples aside and says, I want you to beware of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now there's lots of reasons to be aware of the scribes and Pharisees. In fact, the gospel of Matthew will give you like 20 reasons to be aware of them. But in this exchange, Mark 12, 38, Jesus says, beware of them because they walk around teaching and theirs will be the greater judgment. In other words, all of Judaism is going to stand condemned for rejecting the Savior from God. But those who are teachers in Judaism will stand extra condemned because they're teaching others to reject the Savior. Theirs is the greater condemnation. That shouldn't be surprising to them. Remember Ezekiel. Chapter three, God's wrath is coming unto the Israelites. The Israelites have broken God's covenant. The Israelites are moving away from God's covenant. God's wrath is coming unto the Israelites. And God says, I need a man to stand in the gap, the distance between the covenant and the wrath of God. I need somebody to put his feet and stand in the gap. 
And he puts Ezekiel there. And he says, Ezekiel, you're standing in the gap. You are the watchman now. Your job is to warn those covenant breakers that my wrath is coming. You need to warn them. And then God tells Ezekiel this. If you see my wrath coming and you do not warn them, their blood will be required at your hands. If you do warn them and they repent, you're all in the clear. If you warn them and they reject you, you're in the clear, they perish. But if you see my wrath and you do not sound the alarm, then my wrath will take all of you away and you, even though you believe, will be judged. This is what's in Jesus' mind when Nicodemus comes to him at night. We call that the Nick at night episode. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night and says, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher sent from God because no one could do these things unless God was with him. And Jesus says, well, Jesus answers. You love it when Jesus answers a question that wasn't asked. No one can see God unless he is born again. Nicodemus' mind is blown. He doesn't have a category for being born again. He's never heard that concept before, despite its repeated presence in the Old Testament. In Isaiah's prophecies and Ezekiel's prophecies of the Valley of Dry Bones and Jeremiah's prophecies of the Holy Spirit giving new life, circumcising the heart of flesh and making it a heart of stone and making it a heart of flesh, the Spirit washing you with the water of the word, all the categories are there. But Nicodemus didn't know what they were. And so Jesus rebukes him and says, how can it be that you are the teacher of Israel and you don't know this? And this is why Paul, at the end of his ministry in Ephesus, Ephesus, the strongest church in the New Testament, most likely, Paul's giving his farewell address to them in Acts chapter 20, and he says, day and night, I warned you. I pled with you. There are false teachers that will come among you like ravenous wolves and devour the flock, divide the flock. I've warned you. And then Paul says this, Acts 20, verse 26, therefore, I am innocent of the blood of all of you. I don't know what you're gonna do with the false teachers, I hope you fend them off, but I have warned you. What judgment is this talking about? It's not talking about the judgment between heaven and hell. It's talking about the Bema seat judgment described in 2 Corinthians 5. We all must stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give uh, an account for the deeds done in the flesh. We'll be rewarded for the deeds we've done, both good and phallon, is the Greek word, good and empty, good and vaporous, good and ephemeral. Just good and meaningless. And the good things you do, you'll be rewarded for. And the ephemeral things you do just disappear. And Paul says, if you are a Christian, you'll be rewarded by God. Jesus says, store it for yourself treasure in heaven where moth can't get it, thieves can't take it. You live your life sending treasure ahead. And teachers have a great opportunity to send treasure ahead to heaven. They're using their time and their talent and their resources to direct people to heaven, to get other people to store their, he- their treasure in, in heaven, and that's what we're laboring for. So what potential for reward? At the same time, the point is the judgment for you is so much stricter. Just like there's potential for reward, there's potential for condemnation. You teach a, an immature believer to wander from the faith, Jesus says it's better for a stone to be tied around your neck and you to be hurled into the sea. And obviously, this is Paul's signature command in Hebrews 13. He signs off the book of Hebrews this way. Brothers and sisters, he says, submit to your leaders in the faith. Consider their faith so you know the outcome of their faith. Watch how, you're, watch how those who teach you live their lives. Watch how they turn out. If they turn out well, do what they do because you're going to the same place. <laughs> they turn out poorly, 
close your ears. Don't listen to him. And then he says this, Hebrews 13, 7. Obey your leaders, submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. That we will be judged for the souls we keep track of. And that's what Paul means. And that's what James means when he says, we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So the first reason not many of you should want to be teachers is that you're judged extra strictly. Secondly, the tongue is very tricky. (laughs) Teachers are judged extra strictly. And second, the tongue is extra tricky. And if you say that three or four times really quickly, you'll prove your own point. We all stumble in many ways, James says. You don't need help in figuring out how to sin. There's lots of different ways for you to sin. We don't offer an IBI class here on six new ways to sin. You guys can come up with your own ways to sin. You're creative. There's lots of ways to sin. There's all kinds of different sins for you to fall into. So you don't need help coming up with new ones. But teaching and with your tongue, it's a particularly vulnerable position because you're so, it's so easy to sin in what you say. Psalm 5, verse 9, the tongue is an open grave. Now just think about what that word image means. The tongue is an open grave. Have you been to an open grave before? It's sanitized in our states because there's, you know, there's a casket involved. But even that, the metaphor is fine. You go out there and they've dug up the ground and, and the casket is lowered in and people are leaving and it's just sitting there. There's the guys in the overall and the green tractor kind of idling over there. It's awkward because, you know, they want you to leave so they can fill in the grave. But you're hovering and you go over and you look. And I mean, what's in the grave? It is just death. That's all that's down there. Put it in a casket. It's still death. <laughs> And in other countries, minus the casket, it's even more rank. I mean, it's a very visible picture of looking down into the abyss and having death and the sense of death come up and it just, it overwhelms you. And that's what the psalmist says your heart is like. Your tongue is the open window into the open grave of your heart. Because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Human speech is a running narrative of human depravity. That's what it is. It just goes on and on and on. A running narrative of human depravity. Psalm 39, verse 1, David says, I make a covenant with my mouth not to speak in the presence of evildoers. In fact, he says, I'm going to muzzle my mouth when the wicked are in my presence. Because <laughs> I don't want to say something I'll regret. Psalm 52, verse 4, a deceitful tongue loves to devour others. Proverbs 17, 20, he who falls he who's perverted in his language falls into evil. Here's a great way to keep yourself from sinning. I'll show you right now. You know, the kindergartners here at ICS, they make a bubble with their lips. They should never stop. I mean, it's so easy to keep yourself from sinning with your speech. Just don't talk. And then you turn around and go be a teacher. And you talk all the time. Douglas Moon, his commentary on James, says this, quote, teachers are more susceptible to judgment than others because they regularly engage in the one activity which is hardest to keep yourself from sin, your speech. <laughs> so you're trying to grow in sanctification and you're making progress and then you decide to speak for a living and it's all over. <laughs> First, you shouldn't be a teacher because 
you're judged more strictly. Second, because the tongue is extra tricky. And third, because there's extra sin with the rookie, the immature teacher, the new teacher. So teachers are judged more strictly. The tongue is extra tricky. And there's extra sin with the rookie. When you start, you'll make mistakes. Look at what James says. If anyone doesn't stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. That word perfect, it means mature. If you're able to rein in your speech, you can control the rest of your life also. Think of the amount of self-control it takes to rein in your speech. If you can rein in your speech, you can probably rein in your greed. You can probably rein in your lust. You can probably rein in your covetousness. You can probably rein in your anger. I've never met somebody prone to fits of anger that has great self-control with their speech. You wrestle in your speech, you are going to be a very mature person. In fact, that word, the word that's translated perfect there, it's the Greek word teleos. It should remind you of James 1 verse 4, and I'll flip over there. You can look at it too. James 1 verse 4. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect. That's the word mature and complete, lacking in nothing. I wish it was translated mature because that's the image here. James says that God puts you through trials to sanctify your life. And it's not that you're sinning and the trials are punishment. It's that you're not mature. You're not what you will be. And so trials come to your life to batter you and to cause you to grow, to cause you to shed things that are not of eternal importance and to hold fast to what is eternal importance. And at the end of it, you are a mature person. If you're able to control your speech, James 3 verse 2 says you are that person. James 1 is done if your speech is under control. And that doesn't mean that if you control your speech, you won't have any more trials in life. But it does mean this. If you can control your speech, you won't have any more trials in your life because you said dumb things. (laughs) So a very large portion of your trials will be eliminated. (laughs) Sure, some of you know the story of Charles Simeon. He was that pastor in the 1700s in Cambridge. He started off as a dorm pastor. He was a college student. And he was such a good preacher that he became the kind of chaplain for Cambridge, and eventually the college church across the street from the university called him to be their pastor. He was a bachelor his whole life. In fact, he lived in this college dorm his whole life, pastoring one of the most significant churches in England, and he had a very rough go of it. When he came to his church, he was just out of college, and the church is the kind of place where they, you know, you buy a pew, so your family owns a pew. It's got a lock on it and everything. You're not there, the pew is locked. Like this part of the front row, it's locked. And what happened in the church is the people rejected his teaching, but they left their pews locked. And so the church was empty with all the pews locked. And he, so he, for 12 years, just preached to people sitting on the floor and in the aisles for 12 years. And this developed a root of bitterness in him and brashness in him. He went to visit one of his friends, Henry Venn, in another city one Sunday afternoon. And Simeon was short with Venn's children and kind of argued with them. And when Simeon left back to his church, his daughters, when Henry himself was a pastor, Henry's daughters came up to him and said, how can Pastor Simeon be a pastor when he's that brash? How can someone that proud be a pastor, Dad? And so Henry said to his girls, go outside, it was May, go outside and and pick a peach from the tree. And the girls did, and they came back in, and he said, eat the peach. And they said, it's too green, it's too rough. And they said, exactly. Henry said, that's what Simeon is. He's too, he's too rough. But some more storms, some more showers, some more sunshine, and he'll ripen up just fine. <laughs> Such it is with the new pastor that 
He needs some more storms in his life. He needs some more showers in his life. He's, of course he's too rough. He just needs some more time. But notice why that's the third reason. So you want to be a teacher, do you? You want to go into a position the Bible warns you against, saying that you'll be judged more, and you get over that. And then it says you'll have extra opportunities to sin. Okay, it's a risk I'm going to be able to take because it has extra opportunities for reward. And then after all that, it says you're going to start out being immature. So of course there will be sin in your life. But even through that, God uses it to sanctify yourself and then the church. So in light of that, why would anybody do this? And remember, I'm not just talking this like being paid for it. I'm talking this like teaching Bible study. You're in a Bible study with eight people and you're asked to teach. Do you do it? I would ask yourself, is there someone better than you at it? Or I get that there's a learning curve, like maybe you haven't done it before and you want to see if you're apt to teach and guys are encouraging you to do it. They think you have the skill and the Bible knowledge and you have something to offer, then, then go for it. By all means, do it and see. But have a little bit more trepidation. I think we often treat that so frivolously. You know, we go to the Bible studies where what does this mean to you? What does it mean to you? What does it mean to you? And that's our way of divesting the blame, right? (laughs) But it doesn't divest the blame. It just accumulates the judgment because you're responsible for all those crazy views now. (laughs) I'm sure you've been in the fellowship group where the clipboard is handed around for everybody to sign up to teach. Bob Hartman says, they're not supposed to do it that way. (laughs) But it happens and it gets to your table and the other guys at your table have written down their names. Then it comes to you and you're thinking, do I write down my name or not? And then maybe your wife's looking at you like, well, the other husbands are teaching. Why aren't you teaching? And you're like, if that happens to you next time, just write down James 3.1 and pass the board away. <laughs> As I said, we're all in some sense supposed to be teachers to our children, to those that we're discipling in the Lord. We should all be teachers in that sense. This is what Paul means, Hebrews 5.12, when he rebukes the Hebrews and he says, uh, come on, you by, all, by now you should all be teachers. But this is different than what James means in James 3 here. Jesus says, don't let anyone call you teacher for there's only one who's your teacher. You're all brothers. And that's true. That's true. You're all brothers in the Lord. You know, the Southern Baptist world has a lot of idiosyncrasies, but some of them are awesome. One of them is generally in the SBC world, you refer to your pastor as, as brother. Brother, whenever I see Mark Dever, the pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church, he always greets me with, oh, brother pastor. <laughs> I love that greeting. It's the best of both worlds. <laughs> That's not what James is talking about. We're all brothers in the Lord. We all have the Holy Spirit. We're all teaching at some semblance. What he's talking about is the person who stands in front of a group and says, this will be me. I will be the teacher. There needs to be those teachers. They're good to have those teachers. The Holy Spirit gives the church those teachers. But just slow down before you say you are that teacher. There should be gravity in the role of teachers Many in the church view it with flippancy. We should view it with gravity. And I'm not trying to say that being a pastor is the hardest job in the world. You know, there's other options. Ryan and I were driving this week in the pouring rain and we saw some guys working outside the Pentagon trying to build a new 
trestle for the HOV lane there and it was pouring rain and there's a river of water coming down the on-ramp and these guys are working a bobcat and a sledgehammer and I can't believe they didn't get swept away and I thought, those guys work for a living right there. (laughs) Those guys have jobs. (laughs) I'm not trying to compare a pastor to being the hardest thing in the world. It's not as hard as that. But the point remains. There is a judgment that falls upon those that stand before a congregation with the word of God. Most pastors take Mondays as their day off, and this is why. Because they are prone to depression on Mondays. They're prone to sorrow and second guessing and, and the repetitiveness on Mondays. I remember when I was being installed, Michael Easley stood up here and he said, you know, preaching every week, it's like being stripped down and exposed and put on the front of a ship and let the winds and the waves beat you and beat you and beat you. And the Sunday afternoon, you're let off the mast and you go home and you sleep and you wake up Monday knowing you're going to have to do it again. And I was sitting right there and I thought, great. (laughs) Let's go to lunch. (laughs) So what was it for me that kept James 3 from slowing me down? You should think in your own life, if you're a pastor or teacher or teaching your own fellowship group, you should ask yourself, what what keeps James 3 from slowing me down? I mean, this week I've been asking everybody that. I walked into Jordan Sanders' office and said, hey, you went to seminary, you want to be a pastor? Yeah. Do you have James 3, 1 in your Bible? Why don't you believe it? And then walked out. <laughs> it's worth asking yourself, what, why didn't that slow you down? Why didn't it ultimately trip you? I mean, we all stumble in many ways. And the language of stumble there, it's, I mean, it's for a horse to fall over, that hurts you, it hurts the horse, it just wrecks everything. We all stumble in many ways. Why would you want to go in to being a teacher? Erasmus writes this, quote, do not aim indiscriminately at being teachers. It's safer to be a listener than a teacher. And a small number of teachers is after all sufficient for a large number of people. (laughs) I told you for me it was the Adams and Jasons in my life and seeing the fruit of my work and it was being convinced that I could do more good for the kingdom working full time at this than I could teaching and doing this on the side. And everybody has their own answer. But I think even bigger than that, the ultimate heart issue for me was coming to grips with the beauty of Christ. We all stumble in many ways. You know who doesn't stumble in any way? Christ. Our mouth is a window into the open grave because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. What a contrast with Jesus Christ. Out of the overflow of his heart, purity comes. There's no sin in him. Isaiah says there is no guile in him. You look into his heart, there's no deception. There's no impurities in him at all. And his words come out like honey. His words give life. Not just his words, but his life gives life. He dies. He was not betrayed for any of his words being wrong. He was murdered because his words were true. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And he was rejected because he was the teacher and they wouldn't learn. But in his death, he offers life to us who believe. We all stumble in many ways. But we have a savior who is so eager to forgive. And who then builds his church by harnessing an army of people that teach his word. Lord, we're thankful that you have given your word to us, that we are not 
as Paul says of those in Athens, groping around in the darkness trying to find our way. Instead, you have brought us into the light of your word, the light of your spirit, the light of life. We're thankful that you have given us your spirit, you've given us your son, you've given us your word. We're thankful that you've given us this church. We're thankful for the blessings of Emmanuel that you have gifted this church with so many exceptional teachers. Lord, we pray that you would continue to bless this church with those who can rightly handle your word. We know that you will do it because you delight in seeing your glory magnified in this world. We pray that you would use us to do that this week. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to Emmanuel with Pastor Jesse Johnson. You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.